Welcome to the Millennial Career Playbook's company interview series, which focuses on corporate cultures worth knowing about if you're a job-seeking millennial or simply enjoy working in millennial-friendly environments. This series offers you company-specific information you won't find anywhere else, helping you decide if a particular firm is a great fit for you, and also offering you tips on how to most effectively land a job with the company. I'm Debbie Woldrich, CEO of outsource training company TTC Innovations, which specializes in providing corporations with customized millennial-focused training solutions. Hosting this series with me is best-selling author Haya Bender, whose credits include five dummies books and a complete idiot's guide, and articles for the New York Times. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com, as we're always adding new interviews and other content. Joining Hi and I today is Ann Donovan, Human Capital Transformation Leader for PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the world's largest professional services networks. Ann, can you explain to our audience a little bit about yourself and your role at PricewaterhouseCoopers? My name is Ann Donovan. I have been with PwC for 32 years, which I would hope if we were all together, you would say I don't look that old. I'm in human capital, so I focus on our own people as opposed to facing externally and dealing with our clients. And my role at PwC is a great one. I love it. I get to think about our business and where we're going as a firm, as a business, and what that means for our people. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about things like millennials and things like our culture to say, well, if this is where we're headed as a business and this is where the world of business is headed, what do we have to think about from a people perspective? So that's my very cool job, which I, I love. Can you explain just a little bit about what PwC does? PwC is a professional services firm, 120 plus years old, which really started out as an audit firm. So we go into companies, especially public companies, and we spend time looking at all their systems and financials and everything it takes for them to publish their financial statements, we form an opinion on that and basically give investors confidence that what they're saying is true. So that's our audit practice, which is now called assurance. Tax-wise, we help clients in all manner of tax issues, whether creative strategies or whether it's actually just meeting regulatory requirements. And then we have a very strong consulting business advisory practice, which we go in and really help companies achieve their own strategies, professional services, and people are our only asset. Could you just give a little sense of how large the organization is? Globally, we're right at about 200,000 people. Uh, U.S., we're right at about 40,000 people. So big. <laughs> and in every major country in the world. So we're, we're really in all regions, both developing and very developed. And do you know what percentage of your company consists of millennials? I do. I hope everybody's sitting down. We are right around 80% millennial at this point. 75 to 80% millennial globally. So this is not just a thought process or a fancy that we decided to look into. This is our own, I don't want to call it a business problem, but this was certainly something that we needed to understand, take a look at, and make decisions for ourselves on because the bulk of our people are millennial. Well, I'd love you to keep on the track you just started and tell us about how the study came about and what was involved and what you discovered from doing it. Seven years ago, we started to really notice a difference 
in the attitudes and just sort of general ways of working or at least desire to work in a certain way of our people. And our first thought was, and I think it's a natural, and, I, and by the way, I spend quite a bit of time these days with our clients talking about this topic, so I get to see this process going on now with other companies as well. But we started to think, well, something must be wrong. We must be hiring different people because that's your first, your first thought is, well, these aren't the kind of people that I was growing up in the firm. And so where are those people? Because we miss them. <laughs> it didn't take us long to figure out that that was not the case, but we decided we better put some research and data behind what was really going on. Because as you can imagine, we are a professional services firm. We are numbers folks. We do love our data. And so I knew that if I could get the firm to do this study and we went to the University of Southern California and the London Business School to help us because we needed some big brains there who understand research to help us do this, that I knew if we had the data that that would then help us as a firm really all over the world make some decisions to make some changes based on that data. So it was a very selfish act for us as a firm. We did this for ourselves. As it's turned out, it still remains the largest research-based generational study that's out there. You can go on Amazon and you can look at a hundred or a thousand probably different books on generational issues, but this one really deals with the facts. So we studied 44,000 people, we did focus groups, we did everything the researchers told us we needed to do to have a very, very viable opinion on this. And we got back some surprising, or, or at least some data that allowed us to look at millennials and to look at Gen X, really, and I'll talk about that in a second, but to say, here's what they're feeling, and it really is what they're feeling. In my speaking with my own firm, with PwC, and then my speaking with clients, it's helpful to be able to say to leaders, look, I know how you feel because I'm one of you. I grew up in a different way in business. But if this is now how your people feel, and for us, people is really inventory, and that doesn't sound very touchy-feely, but if all we are selling is our people and their brains, then people for us are inventory, then if your inventory has changed, well, then you need to make smart business decisions to face that fact. And this is emotional for people because what they'd rather do is change the workers back to how they were. It's my natural tendency to say, no, 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 that's not how you do it. This is how you do it. This is how you work and become successful. You do it like I did it. So the study really helped us gauge this for ourselves and make some decisions. And there's one piece to the study that I think is really important for people to understand. And hi, are you okay with me continuing for a few minutes on Please, this one? Yes. Okay, cool. So millennials born between 1980 and 1995. Gen X born between 1965 and 1979. So Gen X is typically in any room I speak in front of, Gen X are really the ones out there sort of leading the charge in business. That's management, leadership in most businesses. And I think actually even our president, president of the country is Gen X. So there's a lot of them out there. Now baby boomers, of which I'm a proud member, are certainly still there, but baby boomers are really looking at retirement. So it's really, to me, a focus between the difference between Gen X, who is management out there, and Gen Y, who are typically more, I'll call them worker level. What makes Gen X happy, I'm going to give you three things for each side of the house here. What makes Gen X happy at work is whether they have control over what they're doing, 
whether what they're doing is really developing them. So they want to be doing some good stuff and whether they're getting paid fairly for that. So Gen X, putting arms in a circle to say, as long as I'm controlling my world and I like my world, it's developing me, I'm learning stuff, I'm getting paid, then Gen X is pretty happy at work. Gen X are a little a bit of control freaks. <laughs> but Gen Y, millennials, what makes them happy at work, how well their team works together, so we call it team cohesion, how much support and appreciation they feel, and whether they have enough flexibility to have a full life. So think about millennials. It's all about how it feels and the environment in which they're working. But Gen X, who's running the show, is all about what they're in charge of and whether it's developing them and how much money they're getting paid. So there's a big gap there between those two generations. And that was, to me, the biggest thing the study showed. If our leadership, if Gen X can grasp that they really do feel the way they feel, truly, and it's legitimate, but their workers or the majority of the people underneath them, the millennials, feel this other way and need a good environment and need it to be flexible and need to be appreciated, well, then I'm hoping, says to Gen X, okay, well, I may not understand it, but I see it here in black and white, so I'm going to make some changes to the way I manage in order to make them more successful at work. So think about decisions that get made in rooms in companies all over the world by Gen X that says, we need to give people good work. They need to put their heads down. We need to pay appropriately. I'm not suggesting, by the way, that Gen Y wants to work for free. This is not a charity situation. So you have to kind of take pay off the table for millennials. But as long as they think they're in the ballpark, You've got these Gen Xers, though, that are saying, if we just give them good work and let them go at it, even on their own, right, because Gen X is happy to be on their own, and pay them enough money, they should be fine. And so when Gen X is coaching millennials, most of the coaching is just about quit your belly aching, <laughs> put your head down and work, and it's all going to pay off in the end. And that is exactly how Gen X was raised in the business world. And you look at Gen Y, millennials, and they're looking at us at leadership like they're a little crazy. They don't understand me. Because what happens, I am a millennial, and I want to feel good here, and I want to know you appreciate me, and I want to know I have flexibility to go to yoga on Tuesday night at 6 o'clock. And I want to be able to talk about that, and I want to be able to ask about it, and I want you to think it's important. And it is foreign. It's a foreign concept. So where do baby boomers fit in, again, of which I'm a proud member? Baby boomers were born 1964 and before. And then there's another traditionalist generation. We at PwC don't have many of those, and that's pre-baby boomers. Our business model, we just don't have them. But baby boomers, and the funny part is we created this problem because we raised these millennials. So I've been in front of rooms of a 1,000 people, and the baby boomers tend to nod knowingly, not about the Gen X part, but about understanding how the millennials feel because baby boomers are the parents of these guys. So as a proud parent of two of these people at home, I can tell you that I hope with all my heart and soul they figure out how to have a job and a career getting the appreciation, the flexibility, the team dynamic that they want because that sounds to me like a great place to work. So we typically don't see an issue with how baby boomers feel about millennials. They sort of nod and say, 
eh, it's fine, they're fine. That's not a bad thing they're asking. So it's really the conflict between Gen X and Millennials that tends to pose the biggest problem. And being in a very hard-charging type A, smart people, professional services firm, we studied ourselves for this study. If you think about our own millennials who typically are type A hard chargers anyway, and our own millennials are telling us they need this team cohesion and this sort of softness around the environment and they need flexibility, you can imagine then how that translates to other millennials outside of our environment. So I do always get the question, well, gee, that's your own people. What about the rest of the world? My response to that is, yeah, it's our own people who already are kind of crazy career-minded people anyway, not crazy, but, you know, hard chargers. So I do think this applies to the rest of the world, maybe even more so. So if I get 15 minutes with anyone in the world, (laughs) that's the thing I would explain to them because my hope is that it helps put it in context with what they're seeing at work and how they're feeling. It's almost a little psychology attached to it from the perspective of, yeah, that is how I feel. I'm validated. That's good. But then that's not how the other people feel, so we got to figure out how to work together. So what are the ramifications in terms of changing company policies to accommodate what you're talking about? For us at PwC, it wasn't really a factor of changing policy. It was actually harder than that high because changing policy, you can always change the rules. I think there needs to be the ability to work in a different way. You need to have policies that allow for part-time workers, policies that allow for people to have a life, for parents to take time off when they have children. I think you have to have the policy certainly to support all of that. And we have for a long time have had benefits that support same-sex marriage and parental leave versus maternity leave. So we've certainly iterated our policy over the years to adjust to society. But I think the harder thing for companies is to have the environment that supports this. I think the hardest thing to change is the environment in which people work. And our Industry has long been famous for long hours and busy season and it's hard. It's a tough environment and buck up and you can do it. And that kind of attitude that certainly was around when I started with the firm 32 years ago. So it's really how do we change it so that if you have a staff, Susie or Bob, who wants to go to yoga on Tuesday nights, who's willing to put in the hours but wants to fit that into how he or she puts in the hours, that's the hard part is if you never went to yoga because you've been in that hard charging environment and you can't understand that, well, how do you figure out how to understand it and how do you figure out how to make the team work so it's possible so that you keep Susie or Bob happy and that doesn't take a policy. That takes a changing of the way you work and that is absolutely the hardest thing that companies have to deal with. Make sense? I'm not looking to argue with you, but I want uh, you to. My feeling is, if you have a policy that, for example, if you've got a company with people going nine to five, and yep. you say we're changing that policy, you can come in whenever you want to, and they tell their people we're going to mutually agree on what you're going to deliver, and beyond that, come in when you want and yep. make your own hours, and that is a policy decision that has tremendous ramifications for the people who work at the company. So it's not a matter of convincing anybody. Uh, If you're at that company, 
that's what the policy is. It's the way it is. Yeah, no, it's a great example, and I applaud them because that's exactly what I was trying to say, and you said it better. But I guess what I was trying to express is even when that's a policy that says we work whatever hours we work to get the job done, then on the ground, on those engagements, so a tax engagement on a big client, that actually has to translate to actually making it happen. And that's what we found to be the hardest thing. So even if it's the policy, we do whatever it takes to serve the client and we can all come in at 10 o'clock and work until 2 in the morning. But if that's not the way on the ground, the managers doing this work, leading this work, if that's not the way they worked, they typically then didn't set up that environment on their engagement. What I'm saying is even when a company sets the rules up that says we do whatever it takes to serve a client and we don't care what the hours are, Actually, putting that into play and executing that on the ground, we found to be the hardest part of that. When you start an engagement, pick a big client, you get out there and everyone says, how are we going to get this done? We've actually asked teams to create a flexibility plan that says, let's have a real conversation about what's important to everyone. Let's recognize we have to meet this client's needs, but let's figure out what works for everyone and let's try to make it work for each other. And that's not anything that ever got done when I was coming up through the ranks. So this is a plan, nothing formal, doesn't have to get turned in anywhere. It's just an agreement. And it helps to really get out on the table. Yoga is important to Susie. And she knows she's not going to hit it every Tuesday night, but she wants to try. And so how can we try to make that happen? So it's much more of a conversation about what's important to people and then a team effort to try to make it happen for each other. I think a big difference is size. Yeah. Uh, to do what you're talking about at a company of your immense size and also legacy where mm-hmm. there are people who, like yourself, have been there for decades and are used to things being done a certain way, that's a challenge. We're trying to take it in chunks of how big the teams are on the ground, and that's where the policy comes in to say, you can make this decision yourself, people, on the ground. You can make this work. Don't worry about whether it works for the firms to have Susie come in at 10 or John. I keep using Susie. By the way, male employees in the study needed this flexibility just as much as females. So this is not a woman issue. This, this is a people issue. Have you had any impacts from your clients as you've been switching over to a much more flexible environment? Have they noticed a difference? So that's always kind of the big question in people's minds is what our clients expect, not the flexible way, but our clients expect us to be 24-7 available to them. And let me just tell you, it's a unique environment because many of our clients are former us or former other firms in our industry. So one of the things that we've had to do is ensure or assure our clients that we're going to get the job done. And it does take a conversation that might not be that comfortable with a client because that client was PwC or was one of the other firms and knows how they work. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's well, but that's the way I worked too. And now, not only I expect you to be like me, but I'm your client. So I really expect you to do whatever I want you to do. So there is that aspect of it, which makes it a little more difficult. But we have had conversations with clients. And let me just tell you that the number of client requests that I've gotten in the last 12 months, it's heated up significantly. And I'm spending quite a bit of time in front of clients because they now are saying, wow, we have an issue with our staff and we don't know what it is, but we think it's millennial related and we know PwC, you've faced this already. 
and you have thoughts about it. So it's very fun to see this evolution. I would bet my paycheck on the fact that every single company out there in every single country out there, because I'm also seeing it around the world with PBC, is going to have to get on this train if you're doing any hiring at all, because any hiring at all these days at the lower levels is millennials. So I've had calls with countries that you might not think are dealing with this yet, the Middle East, with India, with China, all over the world. So it's a great question because it definitely takes a little bit of a different finesse to have to get your client to understand what you're trying to do. It soon will not be that tough a decision because clients will be facing the issue as well. If I could tell you a quick anecdotal story, my son works for the firm. I love PwC and <laughs> if you, you really love your firm if you want your kids to work there, right? So. My son is in the client service staff and he is out serving clients and as a young guy who just joined five years ago, they went through kind of a tough busy season on their client and working till two in the morning and all the stuff that we have done for 100 years. And he was a little miserable, I will admit. And so when it came to year two on this engagement, he said to his immediate supervisors, I have a great idea. I know we have to work until two in the morning. But maybe at 9 o'clock at night, we could all change our clothes and put on basketball shorts. And his immediate supervisor is relatively young. In our environment, you become a supervisor in the first three years. You've got people working for you. Said, no, that's not what we do here. Go away, young staff. You don't know what's happening. Then my son went to the next level up and said, I have this great idea. How about if we change into basketball shorts? And that person, who only knows what the firm taught them, said, again, no, that's not the way we do it. That's not what happens, so go away. That doesn't seem important was kind of the message. So my son, who has been listening to me work these issues for a long time, waited till there was a team meeting and there was a partner in the room. He raised his hand and said, I have a really great idea. Could we change into basketball shorts at 9 o'clock at night? And this partner laughed and said, that's your suggestion? Like, that's what's going to make you happy? And he said, well, it'll make me happier. If we have to work till 2 I'd like to do it in basketball shorts. So this sounds so minor to many of us, but you have a young staff who's just saying, this seems logical to me. Why can't we do this? So guess what? They did it. And the reason this anecdote comes to mind is because now the client does it. The financial organization of the client, who typically also works very hard during busy season, everyone looks forward to 9 o'clock at night. And by the way, I think it's been radically changed. I think they're doing it at 8 o'clock at night now. They're all changing their clothes. I tell you that because to those of us who have been in business a long time, that seems like a very minor thing and we would never even think about it to make our people happy. But it changed the environment on the engagement. And actually we're finding now that some of our offices are even addressing this dress code question because is there something we can do from a dress code perspective that boy, that's free, no investment required, and would that be something that eases it up and makes the environment in which we work, which is already hard enough, a little easier? Sounds minor and sounds a little shallow from a staff perspective, but really important to him. He was kind of a hero to his, <laughs> his colleagues at the lower level, and the team did it and found actually that the client bought into it too. So it was a full circle suggestion that's really worked out. We're seeing actually a lot of those kinds of discussions happening now on engagements as well. Do you know what the employee retention rate is? 
we have struggles with turnover or the opposite of retention since I can remember. And it's an important factor in all these changes that we're making because when I started with the firm, it was a regular event to lose 25 to even 30% of your people every year. We were a training ground and really still are a training ground for the rest of the financial world. There were plenty of accountants to go around and that's the way it was. And that really has changed over the last 10 years. There's a focus now to say, well, how smart of a business model is that? <laughs> and do you really want to lose 25% of your people every year? And how expensive is that? We've been able to put numbers around what that costs. So everything we've done over the last 10 years around our people was to say, no, that's actually not the way we want it to be. We want people to stay around. And we have a recognition now, hi, I think we've always had this recognition, but we talk about it in a much more transparent way. Do you really want to say to someone who comes in at age 23, you should want to be a partner? And that was always the golden key for people. And you never wanted to say, no, actually, I don't want to be a partner. That was just not a discussion that happened. Well, now we're saying, look, you may not want to be a partner. And actually, the way the business model works, we hire 10,000 plus people a year. You're not going to all be partners, a very, very small percentage of you. So how about just coming in, having it be a great place to work, staying for as long as it makes sense for your career, staying for as long as we want you to stay and, and serve clients and recur on clients and add value to clients. How about if we just make that be the value proposition? Some of you are going to end up sticking around for the long haul and making partner with us, but most of you actually aren't, and that's okay. And that is a conversation that was not a part of the deal 10 years ago. So it's changed. We're much more open with our people about how you're feeling, how long you want to stay, what makes sense for your career. And by the way, if when you leave at the more senior levels, manager, senior manager, let us help you figure out where you're going to go and where it makes sense and maybe that's with a client or if it's not a client, we hope you've had such a great experience that you want that next organization to be a client. So it's a system that works well if someone has a good experience, stays as long as makes sense for them in their career and goes off with a great experience recommending PwC. That's a win for everybody. How many people apply for jobs at PwC annually and how many of those are hired? We get hundreds of thousands of resumes in a year in the U.S. alone. I know the numbers are north of 10,000, how many we bring in every year. And certainly from a campus perspective, because we do a lot of hiring on campus, that I think hovers around the 5,000 mark. So the numbers are big. Our recruiting and sourcing machine is really fabulous in finding good people and identifying people on campus early on and sort of showing them why PwC differs from other organizations. So it's a big part of our business for sure. And what do you look for in a candidate? What makes someone stand out? I mean, certainly smarts, certainly the right education. And I'm not talking about the absolute top schools. Having just got my kids through the college process, I'm very sensitive to the type of schools people can get into and how virtually impossible it is to get into so many places. It's a crazy process. So we're not talking about you have to go to an Ivy League to get a job at PwC. Certainly not. We hire from hundreds of schools. You know, you have to have studied the right thing. You have to have shown that you're adept at that. We're not looking for straight A's, but probably not straight C's either. But really then it's how curious you are, how anxious you are to come in and 
change the world from a business perspective. You know, I think that the business overall is changing high and over the next 10 years, so much more of what we do, it's already been automated, but more will be automated. Computers are changing everything we do, so why wouldn't it change what our own firm does, our own industry does? And so the world, as it becomes more complicated, we will then require our people to be smarter and more analytical and more able to take on higher level stuff as time goes on because there won't be two or three years of doing you know, what's fondly been referred to my whole life as grunt work. That's not a goal of ours. Our goal is to get smart people in from campus who can get in there and really hit the ground running and have a really analytical mind and be able to look at a lot of data and decipher differences and to really be able to advise clients based on, not that I found that data, but it was found for me and so here's what I think about it. So the world is becoming more complex. We have a goal of hiring many more STEM hires over the next 10 years, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. Those kinds of skills are going to become even more important as the world becomes more automated because those are the folks that will then have the analytical minds to take a look at that data. It's very fun to be in my position at 30 years with the firm because you've been able to see the change of we only hired accountants to, boy, we're, we're going to hire so many different kinds of people over the next 10 years. But you got to be a go-getter. you got to be analytical. you got to be innovative. You've got to be able to work with clients. We don't hire backroom kind of folks. We hire people who can get in relationships with clients and be able to advise them or have the kind of relationship where clients trust us and we can help them solve their problems. Can you talk a little about Genesis Park? Genesis Park is a great program that we have for mid-senior level folks, so not partners per se, but our a senior manager who's like 10 years into our firm, who is bright, who has shown him or herself to be leadership quality. And we get those folks into a territory, into a country, and I was going to say isolate them, but get them together from all over the world. We've had sessions in South Africa. We've had sessions in Germany. We had session in Washington, D.C. We get them in a, in a place for four to six weeks, and there's some in and out. Some of it they do virtually, but others they do in the place together, and ask them to solve business problems. Genesis Park, a really successful, very big investment for us to get these guys in a place, out of the practice, thinking about business problems. But boy, it's been really successful, and the firm has taken their thinking and used it as a base to really approach these problems in a different way. Can you also talk a little about Aspire to Lead? We have teamed with Cheryl Sandberg, the Lean In organization, and now actually teaming with the United Nations and He for She, and doing a lot of work on the topic of women in leadership and getting women, as Cheryl says, to lean in to being part of leadership, and then taking that to how we get men in organizations to support that, to support our women coming up the ranks, to not let women fall through the cracks and think, oh, this is hard for me, and not because I'm a woman, but just because in many cases, I won't say it's a man's world, but there are more men than women in a t at around a table that I'm sitting at, and 
maybe I don't belong here. So Aspire to Lead is based on Cheryl's work and we've partnered with her and now he for she to say, how do we get more women in leadership comfortable at the table? Because if you only have people at the table high, and this is a, I don't need to tell you this, but I want to say it out loud. If you only have people at the table who look like each other, then you don't necessarily have the best thinking at the table because you haven't brought diversity of thought into the room. And that really goes to not only gender, but also race, et cetera, sexual preference. You've got to get people in a room who are different in order to come up with the best thoughts for our clients. So that's the idea. There are two areas I'd like to touch on in terms of how PwC handles it. One is open door policies and encouraging idea sharing innovation. And the second one is mentorship. Open door policy, we've got it. We have to have it. I can't imagine a company surviving that doesn't have it because millennials want a flatter organization. So millennials seeing proverbial closed door and thinking, I don't have the right to go in there. That is so foreign to them. It's amazing. Think of millennials for their whole lives. They've thought, I'm going to be a little flippant here, but they've thought the world was interested in where they're going for lunch and what they're having because they post everything. So you take those people who share their whole lives online, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's the way it is, and then they come into an organization and then they don't have the right to tell you those thoughts until they reach a certain level. That is absolutely foreign. That is not the recipe for success for the future. So we don't have a closed-door policy. Anyone can talk to anyone we want our people to challenge us. The only way we're going to get better at what we do is if you get your people to, and whether that's from as little as basketball shorts at 9 o'clock at night to as much as why do we do this this way, and maybe you've done it this way for 20 years, but it doesn't make sense anymore. If we don't encourage that kind of thinking, then again, we're not going to bring the best solutions to our clients. So that one is a must. So we have formal processes around innovation where we run contests, we have places that you can go on. Spark is our internal website where you can post ideas and then those ideas get responded to. So I feel like that's more of the form. We, we absolutely have that. We want innovation. Great example, five years ago or five years plus, we're consultants, we're on the road. We have a lot of minutia we have to deal with with respect to time reports and expense reports and kind of the thing you've always had to deal with. And you always had to have a receipt for everything. And five plus years ago, somebody said, this is crazy. Why are we requiring receipts less than X amount? You know, relatively small, but that one question led to a whole discussion in the firm around, yeah, that's, uh, that's probably right. You know, maybe if somebody has a $10 breakfast, maybe we don't actually need to see that. It was because someone raised their hand and said, we need to think about what we've always done and how can we do it differently. So you take from that to an idea about uh, why can't our system create this kind of spreadsheet with this kind of data. So those kinds of formal ideas, we have a place for them and we respond to them. It's, it is time consuming. It is an investment by the firm to dedicate time to responding to that, but it's the right thing because otherwise you don't get ideas. Going back to the basketball story, then you have to also have an environment where you can challenge your boss. You know, I'm not sure how happy that manager was to be challenged, but everything's fine. It was an environment where my son felt like he had the right to say, mm, I don't think we're making the right decision here. Let me try it one more time. So I do think we have 
the environment, it's not really a policy and it's not a program. It's an environment that says, no, we want your ideas. And with 40,000 people in the U.S., 200,000 people worldwide, you're definitely going to run across people who aren't open to new ideas. That's the way life is. But I think if you know you've got the firm's backing to say, mm, no, that's not really, I want to try this again. When I started talking about millennials, seven plus years ago, eight years ago, I can remember distinctly, I, I worked for a guy who I love, who I still love. I was just in a meeting with him. I don't work for him anymore. He's moved on to something else and so have I. But I remember him saying to me, will you stop talking about millennials? I was pushing and nudging and poking and he was like, enough already with this. But we laugh about it now because I didn't stop and I kept at it and now, of course, it was a really smart thing, and he knows that, and we've laughed about it. you got to be in an environment where you feel confident enough that it's the right thing to push. It's the right thing to question, and I think we've created that environment. Do you have an extra few minutes to talk about mentorship? That no, I do. Awesome. I, I would love to be able to talk about it. We certainly have formal mentorship in the firm. We call that coaching, a coach with a capital C. Everybody's got a partner or a manager, senior manager, depending on where you are level-wise. Everyone's got someone to whom they're assigned that says, you're going to be my guy I can go to, my advocate, my help me figure this out in the firm person. We've always had that. I think we always will. I think we should. I think it's important to have. But we also are trying to create an environment now that's much more informal mentoring. So we've got something that we've been working with for the last about year and a half, and that's called real-time feedback, real-time development. How do we get 40,000 people mentoring in a way that's informal, that's in the moment, that happens every day or every time something happens at an engagement? We leave a meeting and I say to the gal or guy that's working for me, I wish you would have asked a question in that meeting, or the question you asked was excellent great job. Don't stop doing that. Those are the types of things that we want done all the time. And it's really a on-the-job training, on-the-job mentoring. What we find is in the old way of doing business, you got a performance evaluation every three months or every six months or whatever. If you're in a, let's use a sports analogy, if you're you know, on a soccer team, you come off the field and guess what? You get to hear exactly what you did right and wrong. Well, there's an aspect of that that creates a better team. So that's the environment we're trying to create is that in the moment when it happens, it's not formal, it's not scary, I'm not criticizing you. We're trying to get better together. How do we do that more often, more frequently, and in a less formal way? So that, I think, is where mentoring needs to go. And so it's not really mentoring from a, here's what you should do with your career perspective. It's mentoring a, here's how you can be better in your job on a day-to-day -day basis. We've also done some reverse mentoring. And so, go back to millennials, we've had some of our offices test or, or toy with, pilot, this idea of, yeah, millennials have a lot to say. And again, they've been saying it for a long time about everything they do. So how about if we get our millennials to meet with some of our more senior folks and be a coach to them and say, this doesn't work well or that doesn't work well or you could do this better. And I just, I'm not a millennial at all, but I just met with a partner recently who does a lot of work on our campuses in recruiting and he was asking my opinion on how he can sort of relate better, even better. He does an excellent job, but even better 
to the folks out on campus that he's dealing with. And we talked a lot about whether that was him being more present on social media or him thinking about the way the interview process happens on campus and could that happen in a more casual way. So we think there's an opportunity for reverse mentoring quite a bit. And we're wanting to take advantage of that because we think it will help our senior level folks, but certainly engage our millennials more than they're engaged now. Can I be honest? I really dislike the term reverse mentoring. Yeah. Um, if a millennial is coaching in something that the millennial knows more than you do, that's yeah. mentoring. You're that's absolutely coaching. right. So yeah. it's, to me, incredibly patronizing just because there's the age difference that you'd call that reverse mentoring. It's still mentoring. I, I love that attitude. And, and so many of us, if we really get to a point in the world where the smartest people, regardless of their age, are running something. You see that in Silicon Valley all the time. I mean, young people running legions of other people being in charge of them. Let's all forget about age and let's all forget about the reverse part. You're absolutely right. It's just mentoring. It's just I'm going to teach you something I know that you don't know. It's great. Um, thank you for, for uh, not getting mad at me about that. Oh, absolutely um, not. I, I'm trying I, to be young and agile. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you've got you've got more energy than uh, almost uh, anyone. Uh, so uh, uh, it's a tremendous pleasure and, and an honor to have spent this time with you. We deeply appreciate you sharing your unique perspective. We're very very lucky to get you, and thank you for doing it. I am honored to have had this opportunity. I love to spread the word, and I just want to thank you so much. My pleasure. Hi highlight of my day. Thank you so much, guys. Hi, and I thank you for listening to this interview. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com as we're always adding new interviews and other content designed to help you find a job or enhance your career. 